You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, my name is Larry, and uh, I'm an assistant pastor here at the Village Church. Um, We haven't been meeting in our church building for the past few weeks, as many of you know, and it's been exciting for me. I don't know how you feel about it. It's a little bit hectic, but mostly I feel excited because it's a beautiful uh, reminder that this place is not our home. Um, It's a beautiful reminder that we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're not at home here. And uh, we're not citizens of this world. And in fact, the Bible often describes us as exiles or sojourners in this world. And many Christians, you know, throughout history, they've experienced similar things. They experienced this dynamic of not having their own church building, whether it's because they were persecuted or they didn't have the funds or, or whatever. And so I, I, I think it's awesome that just for a moment, um, for a few weeks, we get to experience a little bit of that, to share that experience with the rest of the world. Um, today I'm preaching from 1 Peter 1, 13-21, which Jay read. We're going to take a temporary break from James and we'll resume it soon. Um, the sermon title is Holiness, Holiness in Exile. Holiness literally means set apart. And uh, I want to argue that this concept of living in holiness, especially with this mentality of exile, is a lost concept in the American church largely today. And we need to recover this concept. And, and I, I would say that living in holiness you know, throughout history was almost second nature for a lot of the church because a lot of the church was socially and politically set apart already. Holiness means set apart. And so many people throughout history who are Christians, they were already socially and politically set apart. And so being spiritually set apart was just another dimension. But I want to argue that today in America, many people, we grew up in this culture that is largely Christian. So we grow up not necessarily experiencing many of the set apartness socially or politically that many of our peers around the world throughout history have. Um, maybe, maybe you might disagree. You might say, well, I, I'm a Christian and I grew up in America or I live in America and I feel set apart sometimes, but I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I'll just name one statistic. Okay. We've had 45 presidents of the United States throughout our history. 43 of them, 43 out of 45 have claimed to be Christians. Okay. 43 out of 45 have claimed to be Christians. Um, you can guess who, who the other two are. I'm not going to talk about that. And so my point is, the highest office of our country for 230 years has been filled either by a Christian or someone who claimed to be a Christian, okay? And maybe if they claimed to be a Christian, they thought it was politically advantageous for them to be a Christian. Or they were so cultured in this Christianity that they just thought they were Christians without realizing that they were not or whatever. But my point is, Christianity for most of our American history has been sort of the default religion of our country, Compare that to Peter's day, when Peter was writing this, uh, literally uh, a few years, I mean, a short while after this, a huge fire broke out in the city of Rome, and the emperor of Rome, he blamed the Christians, and within the span of a few years, thousands of Christians were burned alive, or sent to the stadiums um, to be killed. And, And so, compare those two, okay? In Peter's day, it would have been unheard of for the emperor of Rome to be a Christian, um, for at least 250 years, right? So that's the difference. On, 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 you know, so in Peter's day, it would have been unheard of for the emperor of Rome to be a Christian. It was very unchristian. Christians were very socially marginalized, socially set apart. 
And today I want to say that although there is some minor persecution here and there for Christians, Christianity is still welcome in many parts of society. And I would suggest the fact that we are even meeting in a school building, the fact that a city government would allow a church to meet in a public school is evidence of that. So while sometimes we may feel set apart, um, compared to most of church history, I want to suggest that many people in America who are Christians, we actually, we actually haven't spent that much time feeling set apart, at least to the extent of most of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, throughout history. We've forgotten, in a sense, how to be holy. And today I want to use this passage in First Peter to talk a little bit about how we can be more set apart, more holy. And I want to just emphasize three points throughout the sermon, okay? Um, three, I want to say, uh, mind paradigm shifts, okay, that will allow us to be more holy. The first paradigm shift is that we need to live with conviction. Verse 13 and 14 says, Therefore, preparing your, your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so in verse 13, Peter, he uses this phrase of preparing your minds for action. And literally, in the original language, the phrase is gird up the loins of your mind. And I have an illustration up here to explain what this means because today in our culture, we don't really gird up the loins that often. Uh, But back in those days, People had these long flowing robes, and if you wanted to exert yourself to do some physical activity, you basically tuck the robe into your belt, which is called a girdle. Um, we don't do that today. The most similar experience I can think of is in the 90s, everyone wore sweatshirts. And uh, if you wanted to play, I was a kid in the 90s, and if you wanted to play four square or tetherball or something, what you would do is you'd take off your sweatshirt and tie it around your waist. Okay, so that's my modern day equivalent of girding up the loins of your mind. And, and if you were playing someone foursquare and he didn't really look that amazing, he looked like a little bit of a chump, you wouldn't need to do that. But if someone came along and he was serious, you know, he was like the king of foursquare, you needed to gird up the loins of your mind, uh, and, right? And so, so Peter's saying that we need to have this mentality with our minds because holiness requires just this mentality of not messing around. You're not, you're not playing some, you're not going easy anymore. Because holiness is serious business. It requires readiness and preparation. Peter also says you have to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. He's not saying literally we shouldn't drink alcohol ever. He's talking about this mentality of being sober, of being focused. Um, uh, One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. And there's a scene in Braveheart where William Wallace, the main character, is about to be tortured and killed, and someone offers him this vial that, that's supposed to help numb his pain. And then William Wallace, he refuses it, and he says, it will numb my wits, and I must have them all. And in a sense, I believe that's sort of the mentality we need to have every day in regard to holiness. We can't be in the state of just this comfortable carelessness. We need our wits every day. Because there are all these distractions every day that cause us to stumble, that cause us to not be holy, to cause us to not be set apart. And so one way to summarize all this is to say holiness requires conviction. Holiness requires conviction. And compare this mentality to verse 14 where Peter writes, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so one way to live is to live with conviction. The other way to live is to live with this mentality of conformity. You know, conformity connotes this concept that you just simply go along with what's around you. 
It's not like you have this conviction already in advance and you act on the conviction that was prepared in advance, but you don't have anything planned, or maybe if you do, it's a very weak plan, and you just sort of go along and you conform with what's around you. And what are, what's around you, what, are, you're just, what is the flow that you're sort of going along with? The passions of your former ignorance. It's just this blind state of just following your emotions blindly, of just whatever comes your way, it seems good, it tastes good, it feels good, you just seize it, and you don't have this mentality of being prepared and ready in advance. So there's two ways of living. The first way is to be driven by Conviction, and the second way is to be driven by conformity. The first way of living is to spend mental energy, though it's hard, beforehand. You examine your life, you look at your goals, you look at your obstacles, you commit to a plan, you persevere. That's living with conviction. Living with conformity is just blindly, instinctively responding to things without really giving a second thought. And and you see the difference. And this is really important because... To live with conviction leads to holiness. And to live with this mentality of conformity leads to not being holy. Right? The first way of living, for example, is a, is a person. He has money. And so what he does is he carefully stewards his money. And he carefully saves. And he carefully gives. And he plans everything out in advance. So that he can be unselfish and generous. Right? Compare that to someone else. A second way of living is a person who doesn't plan ahead. He just simply uses money up wherever, whenever needs arise, whenever wants arise, without planning in advance. Another way of living uh, with, with holiness, with conviction, is as someone who diligently prays for and serves those around her, her neighbors, her coworkers, and she's always having, she always has these people on her mind. She's always looking, how can I serve this person? How can I love on this person? Whereas to live with conformity is just, you're not, you're not thinking about those things. All you're thinking is, I just want to be liked. How can I be liked? So here, here's just, uh, I'm just going to put it plainly. One of the reasons why some of us are not as holy as we can be is because we simply don't try. We simply don't try. Because having conviction takes effort. It takes this mentality of, I am going to try. And many of us, we've lost that. We've lost that. You know, we have this almost this mentality. We might not say it out loud, but we're secretly, we're secretly thinking, it's okay if I'm not holy. It's okay if I'm just a B-level Christian or a C-level Christian. I just want a passing-level Christian. I just want to be a passing-level Christian. It's too much effort otherwise. You know, and just to be honest, just to be frank, I am right there with you a lot of the times. I do that a lot too. There are plenty of days where I know I need to put in the effort, I need to have conviction. I need to do this thing or not do this thing. And I just give up. I don't try. I just turn myself in. And it's almost like during those moments, we're like the devil's chew toy. And we just feel like there's no effort anyways. I mean, I mean, there's no point in the effort anyways. Why is it hard? Because holiness is not natural. Conformity isn't nat. I mean... Holiness is not natural. Conformity is natural. Holiness requires conviction. It requires this very unnatural desire to change, to be different. Whereas conformity is just being the same, right? It's just you're going along with what you're used to, what's familiar to you, what's around you. And so people stumble into conformity, but nobody stumbles into holiness. People unintentionally find themselves conforming and they realize, oh, I'm more similar to 
the world than I thought I was. But nobody unintentionally or accidentally becomes holy. Holiness requires determination and grit and perseverance. It requires this mentality of, I messed up again for the hundredth time. I said I wouldn't mess up, but I messed up again. But I'm going to try again. It requires conviction. So don't give up. Keep pressing onward. Keep girding up your loins. Keep turning to the Bible, to prayer, to community. These are all resources God has given us. And keep fostering that mentality of conviction. Secondly, living with holiness requires a mentality of self-alienation. Self-alienation. And I'm going to expand on this a little bit. But first, I'm going to read verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I want to point out two things from this passage. The first thing is that we are in exile. We are in exile. And that's an interesting word choice uh, in this case in particular because in the original Greek, this word only appears one other time in the Bible. And that is in this passage in Acts uh, thirteen seventeen, where it's recounting how the Israelites were in exile in Egypt. So that's the word that Peter uses, and he's describing metaphorically our current state in this world. We are spiritually as if we are in exile, like the Israelites were in exile in Egypt. We're in the state we are, where we are in this waiting period. We're waiting for deliverance, waiting for rescue, and we're waiting to go home to the promised land. That's our current spiritual state. We're in exile. One of the keys I want to suggest to living with holiness is to understand that we, the church, are exiles here on this earth. We, ha- we need to have this ever-present understanding that we do not belong here. We do not belong here. And that is why we are set apart. That's why we are holy. Because we do not belong here. And the second thing I want to point out from this passage is Peter says we are to conduct ourselves with fear. He says we are to conduct ourselves with holiness, and he says we are to conduct ourselves with fear. And I want to suggest the fear that we need to have is linked with this holiness. And, and note who, he, who we are to fear. You know, exiles often, they live in fear, maybe because they're afraid of deportation, or they're afraid because they don't know the language or the culture or whatever. But Peter's not talking about that sort of fear. In verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, in other words, he's saying, if you really believe that God is the ultimate judge of the universe, then you will conduct yourselves with fear. In other words, he's saying we are to fear God. When we fear God and we do not fear the world, we live with holiness. I won't unpack the concept of fear of God totally today, but I just want to say a few things. We need to know is when you recognize the, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, that God is the sovereign judge of all people, there should be within you this sort of unsettling anticipation of unpredictability, of just knowing God is amazing and awesome and he's glorious and he is so much bigger than I am and uh, I just don't know what might happen next. And there should sort of be this healthy concern over the state of your soul. Um, and, but what the fear of God does is if we truly understand the fear of God, is it drives out all other fears. The fear of God drives out all other fears so that when we know that God will provide, that God will deliver, that God will make all things right, we will not fear everything that's in the world anymore. 
And so the fear that will be on your mind will not be the fear of the world, but it will be the fear of God. And, and here's how it works. When we start fearing God and not the world, our values slowly start to change. Our preferences slowly start to change. Our habits will slowly start to change. In other words, we will become more holy. And when we become holy, we will be different from the world, different from who we once were, and automatically, gradually, we will start to be alienated from the world. Um, Just look at Jesus. Jesus is the person we admire, we follow. And when Jesus came, he was alienated by the world. Why? Because he feared God and not the world. Because he was holy and the world was not. And he was so alienated that the world killed him for it. And so if the God we follow became a man who was so alienated that he was crucified, would it make sense then if we follow him and we claim his name and we do all these things, but we feel zero alienation from the world? We feel right at home in the world. If that is us, we need to ask, am I fearing God more or am I fearing the world more? Am I fearing God more or am I fearing the world more? I remember experiencing this little paradigm shift one time in, when I was in high school. Um, I had been going to church all my life, but, and I'd always said I was a Christian. But I remember having this sort of mini revelation because up until that point in my time, in, of my life, I would say, if you were to ask me what my life goal was, I would have probably, I don't know if I would have been honest. But if I was truly honest, I would say my life goal was to be liked to be accepted, to be affirmed, to be approved of. That was my life goal. And um, that's what drove me to play basketball, to do music, to do well in school. That was sort of my life goal, to be liked by other people. Um, but I remember s- sort of just one day thinking what it means to be holy, what it means to be set apart. And I sort of came to this realization, being holy, being a citizen of the kingdom of God, being a follower of God, potentially means that I may never be liked or accepted or affirmed, or approved of the way I want to be. And because I was not a citizen of the world, I was a citizen of the kingdom of God. And on this word, I was an exile, a foreigner, an alien. And this one moment in particular made this clear. We were at this party, and this was a party with alcohol. And I almost never got invited to parties with alcohol. I was in high school. Okay, I was underage, just to, be, just to clarify. And even if I was invited to parties with alcohol, my, my parents wouldn't let me go. But Somehow, it was after a school dance or something, I went to this party with alcohol, and I was there. And uh, I was Christian enough to know I wasn't going to drink, okay? But I loved the scene. I loved being in a place where I was, it just seemed adventurous and exciting. And, and I mean, there were, you know, yeah, a lot of things going on. So, um, and, and I really wanted to be liked, okay? I really wanted to be liked, so I was there. But the thing was, I went with this guy named Brian, and Brian was a new Christian, and he was a super on-fire-for-Jesus Christian, okay? And that's the term we used to use, you know, on-fire-for-Jesus and when I was in high school. And, um, and, uh, and so he was one of these guys who was super open and passionate about his faith in non-Christian settings, okay? So that was Brian, and I went with Brian. And, uh, and I remember Brian, he saw his friend, and his friend was there. And I didn't know his friend, but his friend was also a Christian, supposedly. And Brian w- saw his friend drinking, and we were all in high school, okay? And, uh, and Brian was like, why are you drinking, man? Why are you drinking? You're letting, you're letting Jesus down. Here, how much did you pay for this? And the guy's like, 
I think $20, and he's like, here, here's $20. So Brian took out his wallet, and he gave the dude $20, and he took his drink and went outside and poured it on the grass, okay? And I was, I was sitting there, and I was thinking like, okay, this is not the way to be liked at a party, okay? <laughs> My goal right now is to be accepted, affirmed, approved of at this point. I want to be a cool dude, and I came with this guy named Brian, and Brian, <laughs> he's pouring drinks on the grass, okay? So, and I was, and I was a little bit... I felt alienated, okay? Brian felt super alien probably. By just even being associated with him, just even going to this party with Brian, I felt alienated. And I was thinking, Brian, you are socially alienating yourself from this party. But then I remember thinking later, if I have to be honest with my faith, if I want to take my faith seriously, then it means that I need to identify more with Brian than this guy who got twenty dollars i need to identify more with brian than this guy who got twenty dollars because this guy who got twenty dollars he was a christian in name but he was exactly like the world he wasn't set apart but brian was not only christian in name but he was set apart he was making decisions consciously that was socially alienating himself from the world and uh i just want to clarify okay i think if you're 21 and older, you can drink. I think it's okay to go to parties. I think it's okay to be in non-Christian environments. And I think, and I'm not saying every time you see someone drinking underage, you should dump it on the grass, okay? I'm not saying that. But my point is, this, this incident sort of made this thing click in my mind. And that is that the call of the Christian faith often leads to self-alienation. The call to the Christian faith often leads to self-alienation. And if we cannot bear at times to experience alienation then we will always be just like the world. We will always be just like the world. And we will never be set apart. We will never be holy. Because being set apart requires being alienated sometimes from the world. You know, I think about that often. Um, why would Brian, a high schooler, you're at the... The high school is sort of the stage of your life where you want to be liked the most, right? Why would Brian, a high schooler, voluntarily choose to be socially alienated like that. It's a realization that he has been welcomed by God. The reason why Brian was willing to forego being accepted and affirmed and approved of by the world was because he knew he was accepted and approved of and affirmed by God. The reason why Brian was willing to be set apart from the life of the party was because he knew that God was also set apart. And what mattered more to Brian was not being connected to the life of the party, but being connected to God. Simply put, the reason why Brian didn't fear the world was because Brian feared God. And so there might be a few high schoolers in the room that I'm talking to, but most of you guys are not in high school. You know, sometimes we have this impression that peer pressure is just a high school thing, but I want to say it's an everybody thing. We might not use that phrase. It sort of takes on different forms. But everybody, to some extent or another, wants to be like the world. Everybody wants to be like the people around them. In the beginning, in high school, it might be the way you dress or you know, the, the, the looks you have, the friends you have, or whatever. But later, it evolves into maybe the car you drive or where you live, how much money you make, where you work. And, and, and there's all sorts of things in which we still have this yearning desire to be like the world, to not be set apart. And we all have this fundamental question that we wrestle with. Do I want to be accepted by the world or do I want to be holy and potentially alienated by the world? 
to put it even plain, plainer terms, do I want to be like the world or do I want to be like God? Do I want to be like the world or do I want to be like God? Sometimes you can sort of get by by being both like the world and, both, and like God, but eventually you're going to have to choose. You're going to have incidents where you have to choose. And during those times, I want to suggest one day the world will crumble. It's going to fade away. But the kingdom of God will never crumble. So sometimes the world will feel like it's turning its back on you, but God will never turn his back on you. So during those times, run to God. The last paradigm shift we need to have is, has to do with where we place our hope. And that is in God. Verse 18 says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here, Peter, he's talking about these futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. And he says, we've been ransomed from that way of living. And now we have this new way of living, which is to have faith and hope in God. So another key to holiness, and I want to mention is, we are to move from hoping in worldly things, which results in futility, to hoping in God. You know, Peter talks about the world in verse 18, and he, he uses this example of perishable things such as silver and gold. And the first time I read that, I, I went, silver and gold, that's not very perishable. If I was thinking about something perishable, I would think about like a mason jar. I broke a mason jar last week because I dropped it on the ground. And so I would think about a mason or like a leaf. That's super perishable. But silver and gold, that's, that's pretty imperishable to me. And, but that's his point. Peter is taking one of the most imperishable things of this world, and he's saying, this is so perishable compared to God. The most imperishable things this world has to offer is perishable compared to God. In verse 4, early in this chapter, Peter talks about our inheritance, our eternal, our eternal inheritance, and he uses this phrase, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so we have a choice again, right? We can hope in the world, and what you get is imperishable things, you get futility, or you hope in God and you get eternity. So I want to encourage you to ask yourself, where do you place your hope? Is it in perishable things or is it in God? Um, there are many perishable things uh, when, uh, on earth that people place their hope in. Uh, I, I thought about whether I want to go in this direction, but I'm going to go in this direction, okay? Um, one of the perishable things that many American Christians place their hope in is our country. One of the perishable things that many American Christians place their hope in is our country, the United States. And what do I mean by that? Okay. When certain movies come out and you go, oh, this has anti-Christian values. Or certain books come out, this has anti-Christian values. Or when certain politicians say certain things or pass certain laws, you go, oh, this has certain anti-Christian values. When those things happen to a person who places a lot of hope in this country, they, they get very anxious, they get very frustrated, they get very angry, they get very scared. Why do they feel those ways? Okay, it's okay to get a little bit scared, a little bit angry, a little bit frustrated. But if you feel overly scared or frustrated, I would suggest it's because you have too much hope in this country and not enough hope in the kingdom of God. Why is it 
that they react this way because they place too much hope in this world. And they have this mentality of the secular country, the United States, could somehow live up to Christian standards. But I would say that's too much hope in this country. You cannot expect, you cannot hope for our Christian to live up, I mean our country to live up to Christian standards because our country is, you know, a secular country. Why is it so much Christians, they play so much home in America? I'm just going to pack this from a historical standpoint for a little bit, okay? From a historical standpoint, America is a pretty strange place because for so long, it has been super friendly to Christianity, at least in name. It's been super friendly to Christianity so that many people, they've, they've stopped seeing any differences between America and Christianity. They, they, they see them as one and the same. And they start using phrases like, America is God's country. Maybe you've used that phrase before. America is God's country. We have songs about it. It's great. And I don't want to say necessarily wrong to use that phrase, but I want to say that concept, if unchecked, it can do a lot of damage because what it does is it subtly convinces Christians that's okay to love both God and the world at the same time because God and the world are the same. Does that make sense? If the kingdom of God and our country are one and the same, then you'll start thinking, oh, I don't need to choose between God and the world. I don't need to be set apart. I can just be who I am because being an American citizen is being a kingdom citizen. So you don't have to choose between God and the world. And maybe some of you, you... uh, you, you still think that God, that this country is God's country, or maybe you think ideally it would be nice if we all work towards this, this goal that, that America could be God's country. But I want to gently challenge you a little bit, okay? I want to push a little bit further, okay? I'm not anti-patriotic, okay? I love this country. My parents immigrated here, and I'm really thankful I grew up here as opposed to China, communist China, where they grew up. So I'm really thankful to be here, and our country has achieved a lot of ideals, that no other country has, okay? So America's great, okay? But nonetheless, biblically, I don't think we can say that America is God's country because think about it. When was America God's country? Was it when we had slaves on our plantations? Was it when we drove out the Native Americans? Was it when we sent Japanese Americans to internment camps? Was it even today where about 300,000 women Every year are sexually assaulted. Okay? America has a lot of problems. And if you think that America is God's country, then you, then you have a pretty low view of who God is. Okay? If your primary hope is in America, I want to suggest you will be disappointed over and over and over again. You'll be frustrated and angry and afraid and anxious over and over and over again. Because... We as Christians were never meant to place our primary hope in this country. We as Christians were meant to place our primary hope in God's country. And what is God's country? 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's country is this holy nation that he's talking about. It is the people chosen amidst all the other countries, extracted from all the other countries to become a new country, the kingdom of God. And it is the global church. God's country is you if you identify, if you identify to be a Christian. That is God's country. And knowing that should change where we place our hope. When our hope in God is stronger than our hope in America, then 
when the values of America, when the values of our government, when the values of our school system, when the values of the media, when those values don't line up with the values of God, then we will be okay ultimately. We won't freak out as much. We won't lose hope. We won't fear. Because our ultimate faith and hope was never in America, but in God. And our main identity, as patriotic as you want to be, our main identity was never American citizen or whatever citizen of whatever other country you are, you're a part of. Our main identity is kingdom citizen. And although America may crumble, the kingdom of God will live on. Well, I'm going to talk about one more thing because I love ranting about these sort of things, okay? When people see America as God's country, when people see no difference between the kingdom of, the God, kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, then what they will inevitably start doing is they will start blurring the lines of church and state. They'll start blurring the lines of church and state. And uh, now usually when people talk about the separation of church and state, that's a term we learn in a government class and stuff like that. They're often talking about they don't want religious people to influence politics. They talk about the Johnson Amendment and things like that. But uh, I was in seminary and one professor pointed out to me the main danger of not having separation of church and state is not that the church will influence the state, but that the state will influence the church. It's not that the church will corrupt the state, but that the state will corrupt the church. And what does what he mean by that? Okay, Here's an example. Take a look at the word evangelicalism. Okay, Maybe some of you have heard this term, evangelicalism. It used to have purely spiritual connotations. It used to mean an evangelical was someone who believed a set of spiritual beliefs. Now, if you ask a person on the street, evangelicalism has way more political connotations than spiritual connotations. Why is that? I want to suggest it's because many people in the church, or I would say the church as a whole, largely has stopped living out its identity as a church and has become a political weapon. Okay, the church has stopped becoming a church and has becoming it has become a political weapon. What I mean is that many in the modern church, not everybody, but many people who are American Christians, they stop living out the values, the missions of the church. They stop making disciples, serving others, being God's representatives on earth, things like that. And what they've done instead is they devote themselves to lobbying, to political lobbying. Okay. And the, and the Bible, okay, no longer becomes this book where you learn about God's redemptive plan and, and his restoration, his reconciliation. All it becomes is a book of one-liners that you use in political arguments. Okay, and, so, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about one side or the other. I want to say both sides, left and right, are guilty of pushing Christian truths onto the government, wanting the, Christ, wanting the church to take on things that only the government should take on. Okay. Christianity has been reduced to just this a list of sayings that people have. Okay, well, they just take this. Oh, this sounds good to support my argument. This sounds good to support my argument. And they take all of that to push certain agendas. And so if the church is entrenched, and I want to say in all these political affairs, if it's dedicating all these people and resources to doing things like making sure certain laws are passed, making sure other laws are not passed, making sure certain candidates are voted for or certain parties are voted for, then the church will no longer be a church, but all it will be will be just a lobbying group or a super PAC. And let me tell you, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that his followers would be a lobbying group. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that his followers would put all their hope in a flawed government system. Jesus died so that we would be a holy nation set apart from the rest of the world. 
is it wrong to get involved in politics? No, of course not. Um, I encourage you to use your God-given convictions here on this earth, in our democracy, to push certain agendas, even in, our, even in the rule of law. But I want to say, in learning about political issues, in learning about engaging with politics, I want to suggest don't get so caught up in it that you lose your primary identity. And here's a good question just to ask yourself, just to check if you've gone too far. When you engage with politics, whether it's posting articles or whether it's just talking, having conversations with your relatives or on the other side of the aisle, whatever, do those engagements with politics make you more holy or less holy? Do those engagements with politics make you more holy or less holy? Does it make you more angry or more anxious or more bitter or more divisive or more proud? Because if it is, then I'll suggest maybe you're invested in that too much. Maybe you have too much hope in this world and instead you should spend more time hoping in God. We've talked about some of the steps that it takes to be holy and among those are to live with conviction, to be willing to face alienation, to hope in God and not the world. And maybe you're sitting here, you're coming to realize, you know what, these things, this holiness deal, it's a pretty high bar. And uh, in many ways, I don't live up to those standards. Maybe I don't have conviction. I just live my life without direction, just following whatever seems best. Maybe I live my life um, seeking to be accepted by other people. I'm not willing to be alienated. Maybe politics makes you angry and you're realizing, you know what, I have too much hope in this world and not enough in the kingdom of God. I fear the world too much and and I don't fear God enough. And so regardless of the reasons, maybe you're just thinking, I don't know if I can be holy. And if that's you... I want to invite you to read verse 18 through 21 once again. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. What matters more is not that we are holy, but that Jesus is holy. Do you catch this description of Jesus? He was a lamb without blemish, just like the lambs used in the Old Testament who were set aside from the rest of the flock to be sacrificed. That's what Jesus did. He was set aside as a holy exile to be sacrificed. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world and he, was made, he made himself manifest. In other words, he had this eternity in heaven, this perfect place to live, and he chose to leave his home and to come to our planet, to be an alien, a wanderer, a foreigner, an exile here. Jesus was the one and only true holy exile. And why did Jesus become a holy exile? The end of verse 20 says, for the sake of you, for the sake of you. Maybe some of you guys are here, you don't, you don't identify as a Christian. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to consider Jesus. The core story of our faith is that even though we are not holy, even though we were sinners, even though we were alienated from God, God ransomed us, he rescued us by sending his son to walk among us, to be a holy exile, to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus chose alienation that we may experience family. Jesus chose brokenness that we may experience holiness. Jesus chose death that we may experience life. And if that's you, if you've never really consciously made that decision before, I want to encourage you today 
to say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my past, my brokenness, my sins. I want to trust in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. For others of you who do identify as Christians, and maybe you've already said this prayer a long time before, you made that decision, we might, and you might mentally understand even everything that we talked about today. It's all familiar to you. But the fact of the matter is maybe, frankly, you just don't feel that holy. And I want to remind you once again, it's not, what matters most is not that we are holy, but that Jesus is holy. Because ultimately, we are not believers in ourselves, but we are believers in God. And our hope is not in ourselves, but it is in God. Sometimes we don't live with conviction, but Jesus did live with conviction. He was not driven by some careless, emotional ignorance, some futility. He was driven by this mental conviction from the start of his life. One day I will suffer and die on a cross. And that's the conviction that drove him every single step of the way. So that even in the garden the night before he died, he had the mental conviction to keep pressing onward. Many of us, sometimes we're afraid of alienation. We don't want to be alienated. But Jesus was not afraid of alienation. He knew from day one, one day he was going to be alienated. He was going to be forsaken, not only by his family and friends, but by God himself on the cross. And he chose alienation. Sometimes we don't hope in God. We hope too much in the world. But that wasn't Jesus. Ultimately, he let himself be killed because he had the hope that God would raise him from the dead. And Just a few hours before he was crucified, he was talking to Pontius Pilate, and he said to Pontius Pilate, the king of the Jews at the time, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Because he knew that his ultimate hope was not in this world, but it was in the kingdom of God. Living the life of a holy exile is hard. You know, it's um, every single day we make decisions to be alienated, to suffer, to make things more difficult for us. But that's life. But thankfully, when it's hard, we can turn to Jesus because Jesus has walked the walk before us. Jesus doesn't just say, now you go be a holy exile. He says, I am a holy exile. I've walked the walk. Now you follow me. You follow me. Let's pray. So actually, please stand with me and then we'll pray. Father, I want to start off by saying just a special prayer for those of us in this room who may not know you, who may not have committed ourselves to you, who may not have, who have maybe just been living in limbo for a while, or maybe we just never made the decision to follow you. We've lived our whole lives just uh, living for this hopeless world, looking for belonging in this hopeless world. And this whole time you're standing right there and you've been wanting to welcome us in, to welcome us home. May your spirit convict us and give us the eyes to see this, this, just your beauty, your glory, that we may desire to follow you. May you stir our hearts that we may have faith and hope in you. Others in this room, maybe we already follow you. We already try hard and we try to meet, make ends meet in our spiritual lives. We try to use our time wisely. We try to balance our, our money and our relationships to try to give everything to you. But it's just difficult and Frankly, sometimes we fail, we mess up, and we feel defeated. And sometimes we don't live holy lives, and so much so that we just feel like we're in bed with the rest of the world. God, I pray that you would wake us up. That you'd wake us up from our spiritual drunkenness. That you cause us 
to be sober-minded that we would run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who ran this race with endurance already, and he is still running this race with us. For although we may grow tired and give up, you will never grow tired and give up. For although the world may turn its back on us, you will never turn your back on us. For although the world may crash and burn, the kingdom will live on forever. Amen.